0: I was an absolutist. I was an absolute abolitionist. No excuse for abortion under any circumstances. I would spend 30 years in that movement, rising to the top ranks of leadership. She said, what would you have done at 21 in my circumstance?
1: In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast.
0: And I landed where she was, and I tried my best to see the world the way she saw it in her circumstance. And I admit it, I would have made the same decision you made. And at that point, I realized this is not binary.
1: Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. Some of you may have heard amid all of the other chaos and mayhem that's going on, you may have heard about the newly released documentary available on Hulu called AKA Jane Rowe. It focuses on Norma McCorvey, who is Jane Rowe. and that famous landmark 1973 decision to legalize abortion uh, across America. And the press have been buzzing about it because of her self-described deathbed confession that she, this confession that she didn't really have a a change of heart about Roe v. Wade, um, that she wasn't in fact filled with zeal for the pro-life cause, that it was essentially all an act. Many, many pro-lifers have for years touted this conversion of Jane Rowe as solid evidence that the the pro choice side is without merit. After all. I mean if if they couldn't even keep Jane Rowe on board of the of Roe versus Wade, how strong is this argument really? Does her abandonment of the, the pro legalization cause doesn't that seriously undermine the validity of the Supreme Court decision? You know, these are questions that get thrown around. But but in reality, there are in fact many people who you might think would oppose Roe v. Wade, but who in fact find merit in the decision and don't want to see it overturned. Christian people, Christian leaders, and I think it is incumbent upon the public, but a, but Christians especially, to not be ignorant or dismissive, but to examine other perspectives and test them against the facts, against morality, against reason, against the scriptures. And that's what we try and do here on the 180 cast. We try and give both sides um, an equal, fair hearing and focus on understanding how people change their minds. What goes into that influence? What is persuasive? What isn't? Um, so what are the arguments for keeping Roe v. Wade as a precedent, especially coming from Christians? What convinces people who vehemently opposed it to now support it? My next guest is here to give us some insight. He is someone I'm excited to be welcoming back to the podcast. And um, he's had a a change of heart about pro-life activism and about Roe versus Wade. This is somebody who's really done a 180. He has quite the pro-life activist track record. He was a leader of Operation Rescue. He helped stage the 1992 anti-abortion demonstrations in Buffalo, among many other activist activities. He is a public theologian, ordained evangelical minister, and the author of Costly Grace. And he is still a political activist, as well as president and founder of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, which is dedicated to rigorous ethical reflection based on the ethical and theological insights of church leader and Nazi resistor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Reverend Shank, thank you for coming back on the podcast.
0: Well, thanks for inviting me back. That's a double honor. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, before we launch into this Hot Button 180, uh, note to the listener, please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you can be notified every time I post a new episode every other Friday. These interviews are always relevant. They are evergreen. So, you know, you don't have to to panic if you think that something's gone stale or anything like that or think that any of the past episodes have, have gone stale, any of these interviews. Um, go ahead and like dive into the archives, if you just can't wait for the next episode, because this is, in my humble opinion, a binge-worthy podcast. And uh, before we get started, I want to let you know that the 180 Cast is partnering with Christian Solidarity International, um, and uh, the 180 Cast is is happy to help them in their mission to free slaves in Sudan. I will tell you more about them in a little bit. Okay, Rob, you used to be an anti-abortion crusader. I think that's a good term to use. Uh, um,
0: it's a very good one.
1: <laughs> so, Okay, so can you take me back to that mindset? Because that's usually where I like to start, about how you got into that that first opinion in the first place. And then we can talk about how you changed your mind. What drew you into the, the pro-life movement?
0: Well, in a very particular way, uh, the invitation of my identical twin brother, Paul Shank, who at the time, back in, we're talking the late 1980s, was pastor of one of the leading evangelical churches north of our home city of Buffalo, New York. I was out on literally the open road. I was on a walk from the border of Canada into Mexico to raise awareness for uh, the suffering of some of the poorest people on earth—the people they call los pepenadores in Mexico, the, the garbage pickers who live literally in on and off of massive uh, inhabited. Uh, refuse dumps in that uh, country. And I didn't know what was happening, but he was getting very involved in uh, protesting abortion, blockading clinics, um, burying fetal remains. And I was oblivious to that. Uh, We were always paired together in ministry from our earliest days as young ministers. At that time, I was headquartered out of his church so uh, it was unusual that we weren't in contact, but I was literally on the open road. These were the days before seamless cell phone towers, you know, so it was hard to stay in touch. And I really wasn't interested in what he was doing in the pro-life arena. It, it didn't intersect with mine, or I didn't think it did. And then he was arrested at the Democratic National Convention in 1988, And it, it, you know, no pun intended, it arrested my attention. It's like, why is my brother, the pastor of one of the leading churches in my hometown, uh, you know, being carted off to jail? It was incomprehensible. Eventually, when we were reunited at the end of my uh, fundraising awareness raising mission, uh, which lasted four and a half months, it was a long time. But when I got back home, he said, all you need to do is come with me once and you'll see what what this is all about. And I did. I went with him to an abortion clinic, watched the sit-in in in front of the doors, watched watched them shut down. By then, he had convinced me that saving the lives of unborn children was worth risking one's own uh, freedom. Uh, and I was a pretty quick convert to that. Uh, I understood the argument that the unborn child is a separate human being from his or her mom, and that every human being deserves uh, protection of their lives, that that's an American tenant, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and a fundamentally moral one. Uh that God is the author of life, and only God can take it. So therefore, the taking of a life in the womb is the equivalent of murder. And if murder is occurring, you must do everything you can to stop it. Now, at that point, of course, we felt violence was not an option, so it had to be a peaceful intervention, not a not a violent one. Though I now know not everyone in the movement, believed that in fact we would have people close to us eventually kill abortion providers. So, um, but at that point, I thought we were all pacifists. We all believed in peace and not violence. So we peacefully sat in, and then from there, um, I, I would use my various platforms, speaking at churches, conventions, conferences, uh, in the media to advocate for that very same intervention by Christians to shut down legal abortion and give women a chance to rethink their decision, uh, to at least delay, if not utterly frustrate, uh, abortion providers from killing unborn children. And uh, I would spend 30 years in that movement, rising to the... Top ranks of leadership, and then eventually making my way to Washington D.C., where I would use Capitol Hill as a platform uh, to engage with lawmakers in all three branches of federal government. And I did that uh, for 20 years. Uh, so I was I was a leader in the pro life movement for about 30, uh, roughly 30, 30 years, something like that.
1: So what changed?
0: Well, a few things. Um, One was being in Washington and interacting with elected and appointed officials on all levels. I realized there was an enormous amount of cynicism when it came to legislative uh, action on abortion, Uh, when it came to uh, law enforcement on abortion. I saw that, for in my own assessment, the majority of public officials approached abortion as a political matter on either side, pro life or pro choice, and that you gained political advantage by using it and the people involved with it, from pregnant moms. To abortion providers, to advocates on both sides, to um, you know certainly national uh, organizational leaders, all of this was a game of political chess. And I'll never forget the time when none other than Antonin Scalia, one of the most pro-life, anti-abortion Supreme Court justices in history, said to me, and a small group of pro-life leaders, we were with him in a private meeting, and he said to me, right to my face, you think this court is going to solve the problem of abortion in this country? You are out of your mind. If you depend on this tribunal to change that, You're feeding a monster that will come out of the basement and eat you alive. You have to go out and change hearts and minds. That's the way we're going to fix this problem in this country. And he was quite angry saying it because he saw in us an idea that if we could just get the court to reverse Roe v. Wade, we would solve the problem of abortion. And he was popping that bubble and telling us in no uncertain terms that is not going to fix abortion in America and that's what put doubt in my mind about what we were doing at that stage that was somewhere around well the years start really fading into memory but i want to put it somewhere around 2010 and then a whole series of events unfolded after that and i finally sat and listened to a personal friend somebody i trusted who revealed to me that she had had an abortion why she had it and why she still felt good about it even though she knew that it took the life of her unborn child and not that i would defend that position today but it it gave me a a, a whole different way of seeing that whole experience And that would eventually lead to my conclusion that we have to approach the problem in a whole different way than we were up until that moment.
1: And for the listener who may not know a ton about the Roe v. Wade decision, what Antonin Scalia said made a lot of sense just based off of the legal ramifications, because all overturning Roe v. Wade would do is it wouldn't ban abortion. It would turn the matter back over to the states to legislate abortion as they see fit. So it, it seems to me, even just on a legal level, he was absolutely right that if you overturn Roe v. Wade, that doesn't solve um, the matter of abortion. And in fact, I've written the same thing. It's like you, you, you've you summoned a molehill and you've still got the mountain in front of you.
0: Hmm. Mm well said
1: okay so what from 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 that point what what changed so you started to get your perspective changed a little bit you got a little bit more perspective by by talking to this woman and um and why she had her abortion but why why was that so impactful what did she say like what were her reasons
0: well first i listened long enough and deep enough Where I could at least begin to appreciate the level of panic, of fear, of disorientation, of terror that she experienced as a 21-year-old pregnant, out of wedlock, and literally terrified of her father and her mother. Of her family. Uh, she worried about everything from uh physical assault, even though she came from a very wealthy and prominent home. Uh, this was not, you know, the underclass, this was the super wealthy class, but she was still afraid of physical assault for being pregnant out of wedlock. But beyond that, putting the reputation of her entire family at risk. And at 21 years old, she said, I didn't have any capacity to manage that fear. And listening deeply, suspending my own judgment. In other words, instead of jumping into her head and into her heart and taking her over, as if possessing her or, or, you know, dominating her, which I think I was given to doing up until then, oh, in the sense that I would listen to someone like that just so long until I finally decided if I had jumped into your body at age 21, I would have made a different decision because I'm a different person. And in fact, you know, I. I'm a morally superior person. I would do better than you in that circumstance. But I suspended that. It was very hard for me to do. I think that's a form of judgment we make of people. And we're warned in in the gospel to not judge lest we ourselves be judged, because according to the same measure, so that we're judged, that we're judging others, we will be judged. So, In that transaction, what happens is I say, I'm morally superior. I'll do better than you. And then in my next moral test, I fail. Now I'm a hypocrite. It it just compounds. So I went through all these thoughts listening to her. And then she asked me a question. She said, what would you have done at 21 in my circumstance? And I traveled back in time. And I landed where she was, and I tried my best to see the world the way she saw it back then in her circumstance. And I admit it. I said, I would have made the same decision you made. And at that point, I realized this is not binary. This isn't just, uh, you know... Light or dark, A or B, ones and zeros. There, there is something far more complicated here than I've appreciated. And, and that, that's when I realized, okay, that this is unique. This isn't like anything else. I used to say abortion is like slavery. Abortion is like the Holocaust. Abortion is like Murder. Abortion is like genocide. And I realized no, abortion is unique. It's a unique uh, moral dilemma, unlike any other. And it deserves to be treated that way. And that started me thinking very differently about it and about the people who choose it as a solution in a desperate moment.
1: So, what did you do next? What sources did you did you turn to and and like where did you ultimately land in terms of your worldview on this?
0: Well, um, you know these days, really uh, for the last ten years, I've spent a lot of time with my all time uh, greatest earthly hero, uh Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the young. German pastor, moral philosopher, theologian who was one of the first religious voices to uh you know decry what was happening in 1930s Germany with the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party and then eventually uh would become one of the premier resistors uh, to the Third Reich in Germany. Uh, would would be hanged by the Nazis um, in 1945 at age 39, but not until he left us an enormous body of work on Christian ethics. And in his magnum opus uh, called Ethics, he basically tells us in between the lines how he came to embrace a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler, the head of state. That, that's a pretty big leap for any Christian, uh, given any circumstance. But his, in, in helping us understand his thought process there, it, it, he, he really helped me to grasp how every moral and ethical dilemma that we face is unique in a moment of time. We can't repeat the events of even seconds ago, let alone years, decades, or centuries and millennia ago. Neither can we jump into an unknown, unreal, imaginary future. We have to deal with what we have at hand right now and come to the best solution that we can and take the risk in doing so. He thought that by joining the conspiracy to kill Hitler, he might be endangering his very salvation, but he said, that's not an excuse for acting irresponsibly. All that taught me with Bonhoeffer was that these aren't formulaic. They're not easy. You know, we don't say to anybody, including somebody looking at abortion as an option, that you had a b c d e equals f and that's always against abortion there's no i was an absolutist i was an absolute um abolitionist no excuse of abortion for abortion under any circumstances at any time for any reason period now maybe if you were going in to save a woman's life you might inadvertently kill the unborn child. But that's not abortion. That that's an unforeseen uh, in many cases it wasn't. I mean, you know, physicians, pro-life physicians would tell me sometimes we go in, we know that the result is going to be death uh, for the unborn child. But we have to because we're choosing to save the life of, of the mother. But I thought of it as uh, you know, on what's the term we use Um, like unanticipated um, uh, uh, you know an unforeseen consequence we we didn't see that coming some that wasn't always the case but regardless i saw it always as um on or off and i realized it's not that this this is not that there's far there are far too many factors, bracketed sub equations within the equation, and a very long long formula. When I was out in front of abortion clinics for almost thirty years, saying, "Mom, don't kill your baby. You'll be a murderer." Not even not even the Bible defines every act of killing an unborn child as murder uh there's there's mosaic law that treats it as almost a um like a negligent homicide it it's
1: is are you talking to are you talking about the passage where it's like if two men are striving together and exactly. the woman tries to intervene and um one of them strikes her and she and uh, the baby is I don't remember exactly how it is, but it's something like the baby is I had forced out. I have the reference
0: out. in front of me. Right. Yes.
1: Um. Yeah. So that would be it, like negligent because they weren't, you know, maybe trying to kill the baby, but she got away.
0: Right. Yeah. Miscarriage. Uh. And you know, but but why why why? It, so all of these things simply were n- new ways of thinking about this question for me. It didn't leave me pro-abortion, I can find no reason, and I'm open, I mean, you know, people can challenge me on this, I see no reason ever to celebrate abortion as a good choice. People say, oh, you're now pro-choice. say, no, I'm not pro-choice. I think abortion is a bad choice, always a bad choice. But I understand the choice in a way I've never understood it before. That's different. I, 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 to me, abortion, you know, if we're talking about intentional, abortion can mean many things, including miscarriages and stillbirths. But an intentional abortion is always indication of a failure, a, a terrible one, a moral failure, somewhere, at some time, in some place, by somebody. There has been a terrible failure, but that doesn't mean that the solution to those very complex failures, some of them on massive scales, is a law and an arrest and a prosecution and a punishment. that, That to me, you know, or a lawsuit doesn't solve that problem. Not one bit. And, and that's where I'm... So when people ask me, well, what are you now? Are you pro-life or pro-choice? I say I'm neither. Because those have political and social definitions that I don't relate to anymore. So I'm searching for new terminology. That That's really part of us. Part of
1: Do you remember when exactly you sort of made up your mind that overturning Roe v. Wade would be a bad thing? Like, was there a moment moment where Hmm. that crystallized for you?
0: Wow, that's a very good question. Um, It was certainly after the conversation with Justice Scalia. It was after my friend told me of her experience somewhere in that mix. I can't remember what year this was now. Um, I was in jail for protest work, uh, for, um, a a whole different, uh, you know, public advocacy work. And I was in jail. I was in Alabama, as a matter of fact. And they put me on, um, In solitary confinement i won't go into the whole story it's quite a quite a drama but i ended up in solitary confinement and weirdly it was uh it 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 was um both genders male and female uh, on the same in the same uh, cell block and there were women in there at least two of them i remember they were in great distress one of them was literally yelling, screaming out constantly. And, you know, they were trying to keep her quiet and it was just awful. But she kept saying, where are my kids? Nobody can take care of my kids. Where are my kids? I got to take care of them. And just screaming. It was, it was absolutely horrible. And somehow that that experience came back into my consciousness, and I, and I thought about that woman, and I thought about the life she has lived as compared to all the other women in my world, from my own wife, to my daughter, to my sisters, to my cousins, to my friends, my colleagues. They live an entirely different life than this woman lives. So they look at everything, abortion, the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, pro-life causes, Bible verses even, completely different from this woman. And once, once I processed all that, I, I, I just thought, until we really understand each other, we can't make this decision for each other. That woman has to ultimately live with the decision that is either made for her or she makes herself. And that was probably as recent as hmm, 2020,
1: 2018. I know you wrote an op-ed last year, I think last March about this subject. Yeah. So maybe, maybe 2018.
0: You know, I, I can't remember when when that printed. I think it was a year ago, uh, just a little over. So, so i, I put it at uh, 2018 when I came to that. What is my conclusion right now? And I, it's not set in stone. I mean, in the sense that I want to be open. Um, I do think, you know, I have ideas on what we have to do. In order to reduce abortions in this country and maybe eliminate it, though it was present 5,000 years ago, I, I doubt we'll ever eliminate it. Just like, you know, we'd all love to eliminate all forms of violence in the world. Probably not, but we can reduce it down greatly. And I have ideas about how we should do that, but it's not by passing laws, at least not now.
1: So what would you say to the question of, you know, because with all of the civil unrest going on and and civil disobedience and Christians are divided on this subject and stuff, you know, it raises, it brings back into our focus certain passages in the Bible, like 1 Peter, I think, and Romans 13, and where it talks about obeying the, the authorities, but it says specifically, like, the authorities are established by God, and it implies that they're they're accountable to God for how they for how they govern um, and how they treat their their subjects or the population that they're governing. So, but where does that put our legislators, our our judges, etc., in terms of their relationship to God and to God's laws? Right, because we should be desiring to have laws that reflect God's will like his prescriptive will for how we should live our lives you know the the 10 commandments for instance like a lot of courthouses across the country have copies of the commandments in their courthouses so but where does that put them right because aren't we supposed to be trying to conform laws more to be more justice oriented and and doesn't it seems like you know? Of course, I'm bringing this from the abolitionist perspective, so we can kind of have an interaction. Sure. It, but like, um, it seems like the Bible is pretty clear that everybody who's a human is an image bearer of God, and therefore worthy of of dignity and respect and life. But if we allow for laws that contradict that, where does that put us? in relationship to god's will
0: it's a it's it's certainly a worthy and necessary question to ask on the romans 13 i think there's a key there because the the greek word for power or authority the civil authorities or powers that's referred to there is exousia And Bonhoeffer interpreted this not as any authority, any governmental authority. For example, in Nazi Germany, one of the most popular defenses for killing Jews by the executioners in the camps was they were being good Christians. They were obeying authority. They had no right to question authority. The government authority had spoken. They were to carry out the executions, and they did so. And one man was quite clear. He referenced Romans 13. He said, I obeyed St. Paul's admonition in Romans 13, and I was an obedient Christian. There's a serious problem in that. How do we deal with that? Well, what Bonhoeffer said was that exusia does not refer to any authority, but only to God-given authority or power, and that we have to discern that for ourselves. So let's just take a very cynical judge, a very cynical politician, who, as one said to me during my heyday, and this was when I was very supportive of any legislative action against abortion he said you know once we put abortion on the table with you guys we had you trapped you couldn't go anywhere else he meant the republican party he said once the republican party he didn't say that we were in that context we were in a republican strategy meeting and he said you know once we put abortion on the table we got you guys you couldn't go anywhere else Mm -hmm. you had to stick with us well now you have to ask the question is a law passed to manipulate and control people. And let's say bring in, for example, uh, capital punishment, um, you know, detention of children and separation from their parents at the border. We're going to get all those things because we put abortion on the table. It's not going to change anything on abortion. It's just going to make everybody think it will. Is this power given by God? Is this authority generated from the holiness, from the pure heart of God? No, it's not. So, Bonhoeffer would say, discern that. What is the origin of it? What is the nature of it? What is the essence of it? And and it may be irrelevant. The law may be completely irrelevant when it comes to God's law. So, I guess that's a complicated answer to what sounds like a simple question, but it just isn't anymore for me. It's not a simple question. You know, it's not a two plus two equals four. Uh, it's equation. not a John
1: MacArthur answer.
0: Uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> that was, I'm sorry, that
1: was a cheap shot. That, was <laughs> I'm cheap shot. that wasn't fair.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. You know, sometimes he seems very simplistic to me and other times quite. Complex in his thinking. Yeah, so it depends sure. on what day of the week, I guess.
1: <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I found his uh, whole reaction to, you know, all the social distancing measures and stuff very interesting. I don't know where he, he's at now that California has legalized 25% capacity up to 100 people or something like that. But yeah, I'm, that's sidetracked. But thank you for indulging that question because it's like burning on my mind right now in terms of obeying, you know, what does it mean to obey the authorities? What does it mean to be a good Christian? Can they engage in civil disobedience? You know, like who's accountable to God? Like, cause it says in Romans, like the authorities are put there by God basically to, to punish evil doers. So then I guess it mm-hmm. just leaves you with the question of who are evil doers. I, I know that there's nuance. I'm, I, you can't convince me, but I'm seeing where you're coming from and you're doing a pretty good job explaining it. So like, for instance, in your, your, New York, your New York Times piece from last year, you, you called on activists to, you said, like, devote yourself and your considerable resources to taking care of poor women and their children before you champion laws that hem them into impossible situations. What does that mean? Are you saying that it's a it's a wrong abortion is a wrong choice? But if you're put into certain situations, then it's effectively justified, and those women shouldn't be considered as evil doers because of the circumstances they're in. Like, what does an impossible situation constitute in your mind?
0: Well. You know, part of it is I reflected on that experience I had in Alabama, I think in that essay, I've written a few of them now, but I think it was in that essay that you're referring to that I referenced my experience in the Alabama jail with uh, the woman there, the mother. And every impression I got, I could be wrong, but I think I was right in the context and what some of the Uh, guards were saying to her and the way she expressed herself her children were in desperate i don't know how many children she never said but she had more than one child in desperate conditions there was no one outside of the jail to take care of them i got the impression from just looking at her that she was desperately poor uh she looked mentally ill to me i don't know i'm not a mental health professional but she looked mentally ill to me at least addicted in in some way and she looked in terrible physical condition well we imagine one thing for a woman who says all right you've convinced me i'll have my baby and maybe we imagine her cradling that child in her arms and with a a look of of you know joyful peace on her face as as a mom of a newborn and there's people around her maybe maybe family but if not church folk around her or or simply that she will with a smile and bright eyes uh you know allow another family to adopt her child and find happiness with that baby That's imaginative. That's fantasy. For her, that was not what choosing uh, life for her child meant. In fact, it was a horror. There was no question in my mind that her children were living in a horror, a daily horror. So would we say to her, you've made the wrong decision? You killed your child. Therefore, you are worse morally than anyone than anyone who chooses life for their child, even if it's horror for those children and it's terror and desperation for you. I don't think that's, I don't just don't think that's it. It, it defines itself in that moment. So, we can say, well, of course, we understand why she would kill her unborn child, given the circumstances. Some might allow that. Some might say that. We understand she can be forgiven. She can find mercy. But what you're saying in that is she still committed an abominable act and must find mercy from God as a forgiven murderer. That's problematic, I think in in christian ethics so all i'm saying is there isn't one rule that applies here that's what i was trying to say in the essay it's it's not that one rule applies it's not this or that it can be many things at once you can call me a relativist but frankly i think god's love mercy and even permission is often relative and if that makes, you know, I don't know what that makes me. I have no idea, but, but it's, it's the way I'm able to process it at this point. I, I do imagine an ideal world where no one aborts a child ever for any reason and that that child is always in every circumstance welcomed lovingly, caringly, protectively into the world and nurtured and given every opportunity we would imagine a child should have but it simply is not the case that is fantasy not faith it's fantasy and this is another place offers has helped me is that the gospel is an intersection between god and reality the real world when 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 God entered the world as a man in the person of Jesus, He didn't enter into an imaginary being, but into a very real being who felt pain, who cried when his friend Lazarus died, who felt uh, fear, uh, all all the realities that we live with. He did as a real human being, not a not a phony or partial one, but a real one and These are real circumstances, not imaginary ones, real things that happen to real people and and that's so there are no simple equations and and when we think, okay, if we just pass these laws, if we make abortion illegal in Texas, there'll only be a few of them. They will be terrible, and they will be um, regrettable. But there will only be just a few abortions in Texas, and that will settle the matter in Texas. That's fantasy. It's not reality. Women will still choose to abort. They will wish they could abort. They will wish they could have aborted when their children are in the circumstances of that jailed woman's children in Alabama. There will still be enormous agony. That's not the solution. So I've written and said and told myself, there's a different course we must take. And, and let's take it. And that's my 180. That's where I've turned around because I thought the solution was ban abortion on every level, and we will be most of the way to solving the problem. Not so. Not so.
1: Speaking of solutions, you may have heard of Christian Solidarity International. Um, You may not have heard of them, but... This small team is literally setting captives free. CSI has freed over 100,000 people from slavery in the last 25 years, bringing them home to their families and communities in South Sudan. I want to tell you about Ajak, who is one of the many women CSI has helped liberate. She says, I was taken away from my mother like an animal. My mother cannot do anything to protect me because she is a slave. I was forced to work hard with the cattle without any respect and no payment. She goes on to say that she was forced into Islam and sold to another master with whom she had a baby. She worked very hard and received zero respect, no dignity as a human being. But then a CSI slave retriever found her and brought her back to a camp where she met other slaves who were being freed, and they walked together on foot uh, back to the area that they were taken from originally in South Sudan. CSI is the only organization right now that is freeing South Sudanese from slavery, and they need your help to free thousands more in this upcoming year. What your gift would do is quite astounding. Give what you can afford and what the spirit leads you to give, but here, here's what $250 buys. It buys freedom in exchange for a cattle vaccine called Novidium, a bag of hope, which is a survival kit to meet immediate physical needs like tarps, shelter and hand tools, a goat for future dairy products to sell and to eat, a year's worth of sorghum, which is a hearty drought-resistant grain for food, and seeds and tools for planting. The CSI team, they they love on these people who are newly released from slavery. They really show them the love of Christ. They provide relief celebrations that include prayer and gathering for a meal. They provide medical care to, for those in need, and they need funds for that too. The CSI team is they're offering comfort and encouragement and material aid so that they can start a new life of hope. So please call 888-342-1010 to give the gift of freedom and hope to slaves in South Sudan. 888-342-1010. And I will list that number in the episode description. Okay, so Rob, I I feel obligated to, to ask you one more question, and then we'll wrap it up with, with sort of your elevator pitch to people to, to pro-lifers to change their mind, but when you say when you say that it's essentially relative for for women who are in very very difficult search uh, situations and they have abortions, they're very poor, you know, they're in desperate circumstances. Is and that it's it it may be okay in that situation morally. Are are you saying that it it would seem to say that children who are born in poverty are almost like less worthy of being born into the world. And I hear that coming from the, the pro-choice side all of the time. Like you're letting all of these kids be born into poverty. I mean, many, many children are born into welfare cycles every year into communities that are, are chronically poor and chronically um, dependent on outside help. So isn't that, isn't that kind of like saying that they shouldn't, that they shouldn't have been born. I mean, what, what's the effect of, of your perspective on, on those children?
0: Yeah, to me, it's, that's not even the question. It's certainly not the question I ask about it. The the question I ask is in that moment when a pregnant mom looks at her self, her world the future, the circumstances, feels the terror, the fear, the panic, the anguish, the w- whatever she feels, the desperation. And you say to her, by law, in the canons of law, and I really I, I can't quite get to a place where we pass a law stating that abortion is the equivalent of murder. And then we say, but we don't enforce or, pu- or punish it for it. Right. I think, though I disagree with him terribly, I think President Trump was right in his first instance when he said, I think there has to be some form of punishment. I think he was right on that. If that's the law, there has to be some sanction that attends to it. And if the answer is, we will punish you, for that and it will be serious punishment in some form. And you will go ahead with the pregnancy, which affects, I think, a mother, a a woman, and in a way, first of all, a man can never we we certainly can never appreciate. I, I don't know what pregnancy is like. I've seen it from the outside. I have no idea what it is. So you know maybe women are better to speak to this all around because they know what they're talking about. But in any case, so It uniquely affects a woman. It uniquely presents questions that no one else will ever ask in any other circumstance. And we say, but the consensus is we will, we will punish you. And we say that's part of the solution to this. That will make sure that every child has a good chance at life. Well, first of all, we're lying to ourselves. That is not the case. That is simply not the case it's so much more complicated and the outcomes are so much more uncertain than that. And we should admit that to ourselves. So I guess really the bottom line for me is that it is certainly not about the value of that life. It's about the people in the equation. And these days I'm saying the worst people to insert in that equation are politicians and law enforcement because they don't make their decisions for moral reasons so let's bring a whole different approach to it It, it's not a question of the value of that human life that's certainly part of the question the moral question but it's not what attends here to the question of legislation and judicial decisions those are a different set of questions Meant to come out with different answers. So, to me, it's a different time. It's a different place. It's a different set of questions. It's a different approach. But in the end, it's a. It is certainly about the sanctity of human life. In this sense, that I, it's what I wrote in my New York Times piece. If we would all give attention to how to create a world where a woman says, "Oh wow, I can't think of that." My baby has a chance. There's enough support here. My baby, what what if we did this? What if we said, first of all, every woman who is pregnant will get free health care across the board? No nuance about it. Totally free health care, not only for her and her unborn child, but for her child up to age 12. And beyond that, she will get $2,500 uh immediately and then she will get you know x per month all of this plus a network of support for her and her child going into the into the future including free education how would that affect that woman in that moment of panic and desperation i think enormously enormously and that was my point in the essay
1: so what is your uh your elevator pitch to someone who is in your former position who's a, a staunch pro-lifer what, what do you say to that person if you just have a couple minutes to get them thinking like tracking along the route that you took to your conclusions
0: Let's not think like ourselves about this, but put ourselves into the bodies and minds and hearts of the people in the center of it and look at it the way they see it. Beyond that, let's ask new questions and find different solutions. There's no, we have to stop taking the easy route, imagining. The, re- the results and look at reality. That's my pitch.
1: I wish we could talk more about this, but we're out of time. Thank you for joining me today and, and talking about this hot button issue. I, I really appreciate it. And I really think that the listener is going to find it highly valuable to this whole discussion and it's going to be relevant for many years to come, I think. So um, it's very challenging. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Georgia. Thanks for the invitation to talk about it.
1: Absolutely. You can follow Reverend Shank on Twitter at @revrobshank1 s c h uh, e n c k and you can read more from Rob at Rev, uh, revrobshank.com. You can also check out the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute at tdbi.org and you can buy Costly Grace on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. He is uh, again interviewed in the the new documentary AKA Jane Roe which is centered on Norma McCorvey and Roe versus Wade, um, don't forget, do, do not forget to check out the previous episode that we did with you. The Evangelical Pastor Flips on Gun Regulation. So check out that one too. And then if you want to hear the flip side of this 180 or something close to it, check out episode 38, which is how history and theology converted this Christian to abortion abolitionism. Please, if you have thoughts on this episode, which I know that you do, leave a voicemail or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802, where you can flip out or try to flip my position, or tell me about your own flip-flop slash 180. 323-999-1802. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180casts, and please do consider taking 30 seconds to give it a review on Apple Podcasts if you like it. Follow me at georgie underscore Borman. I opine on a, a lot of topics from a Christian conservative worldview. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see. Who I am, what I need, who I've got In the middle of, of, of the struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got to be Executive producer, Kevin McCullough Music by Reese Croft. Who I am, what I need, who I've got In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got to be